The search for the gunman in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting is now 45 hours long. A large focus is on the river where the suspect's car was found parked. Meanwhile, loved ones of those killed prepare to pay tribute. It's Friday, October 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear from a Bates College student and his dad who went to bring him home to Newton after almost two full days of lockdown. I'm excited to have Marcus be home for a time and hopefully by the time I bring him back up to campus, this whole situation will be resolved. Israel's expanded airstrikes and ground operations in Gaza have knocked out communications for residents. And Grammy Award-winning percussionist Daphnis Prieto is a master musical innovator. This weekend, he and singer Luciana Souza take the stage in Boston. It's 4.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Israel's ground operation in Gaza is expanding as it prepares for what's likely to be a major ground offensive in its war against Hamas, the Palestinian militant group that waged a brutal attack on Israeli civilians three weeks ago. Since that time, Israel has been carrying out airstrikes on Gaza, which has been thrown into a communication blackout, and emergency supplies are running low. In Washington, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby updated reporters on the international aid getting in so far. Ten additional trucks got in today. That that brings the total to 84, uh, which obviously uh, we're glad that 10 more trucks got in, but it, it, it's not at all going to meet the need. From Tel Aviv, NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni has the latest. No fuel has been able to enter Gaza since Hamas militants launched its cross-border attack in southern Israel, killing more than 1,400 people. Many hospitals in Gaza don't have water, electricity, medicine. It's like unbelievable. You cannot imagine how bad the situation. Dr. Muhabban Kandil is an emergency doctor at Nasar Hospital in Khan Yunis in the south of Gaza. The health system for me, it's now shut down. It's collapsing. You cannot say anymore we are in a regular hospital. He says without electricity, he's performing surgery with the light from his mobile phone. Without water, he's unable to wash his hands. Many of his patients won't survive unless they can leave Gaza, but the borders are not open. Alyssa Nadwarni, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The manhunt continues this hour for Army Reservist Robert Carr, the fugitive suspected of carrying out this week's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. He's accused of killing 18 people and injuring 13 others when he carried out a shooting rampage at two locations, a bowling alley and a restaurant. Murray Carpenter of Maine Public reports many residents are still sheltering in place. After searching the suspect's home last night, state and federal authorities have shifted their focus to the Androscoggin River, near a boat launch where the suspect's car was found. According to Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife spokesman Mark Laddie, about 40 people are searching the area by air, land, and water. Helicopters are hovering nearby, and two boats equipped with side-scan sonar are searching the river. A power company released water from a downstream dam to lower the water level and aid the search. Laddie said the goal is to rule out areas where the suspect might be. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter in Lisbon, Maine. Republican Congressman George Santos of New York has pleaded not guilty to 23 charges, including identity theft and credit card fraud. Santos was arraigned today, months after he pleaded not guilty to earlier charges following his arrest. Among a string of allegations, the Republicans accused of lying to Congress about his wealth and claiming unemployment benefits while he had a job. Santos continues to represent his New York district in Congress. He's resisting calls from several Republican lawmakers to resign. It's NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. More now on the massive search in Maine for the man wanted for the mass shooting that killed 18 people and wounded 13 in Lewiston. Nearly two days after the shooting, authorities have not said they have any leads on Robert Card's whereabouts. Commissioner of Maine Public Safety Mike Soschuk says they're sifting through hundreds of tips. Soschuk says one focus of the search today was the area near Lisbon boat ramp. The river is a big piece of this. The car was located there. Uh, evidence is located at, at, in, the, in the vehicle or right there along the, the shores of the Androscoggin River. So that's stuff that, that we want to make sure that we're checking. The Maine Medical Examiner's Office has identified all 18 victims in the mass shooting. The youngest was 14 and the oldest was 76. Massachusetts Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling for a pause in the fighting in the Israel-Hamas war to allow for humanitarian aid to be delivered to civilians in Gaza. The senators are also calling for Hamas to release all of its hostages immediately and unconditionally. In their statement, Warren and Markey say Israel has a right to defend its citizens after Hamas's terrorist attacks. The state is giving the nonprofit CyberTrust Massachusetts more than $2 million with the goal of strengthening cybersecurity in cities and towns. The Healy administration says the money will help Massachusetts colleges and universities encourage students to pursue cybersecurity careers. Well, as we approach Halloween, the city of Salem is anticipating huge crowds this weekend. Salem Mayor Dominic Pangalo says so far this month, the city has had about a million visitors. He's urging visitors to take the train or the ferry to Salem and not drive there. We're expecting probably over 100,000 people in downtown Salem on Saturday. We have 4,000 public parking spaces downtown. So if you're planning to drive, you're planning to spend a lot of time in traffic. And then if you're even able to find a parking space, you're going to pay through the nose for it. Pangalo is advising weekend visitors to check ahead for tickets for tours or exhibits because many will sell out quickly. Well, skies will clear out for the most part tonight. Temps will only dip to about 60. Tomorrow might make up for the dreary, wet weekends. As of late, it'll be sunny with temperatures near 80. It'll get cloudy Sunday with a chance of showers by afternoon. The high will be in the upper 50s. Then high 50s for Monday, and the rain will stick around. It's 75 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It has been another frustrating, painful day for people around Lewiston, Maine, where 18 people died in this week's mass shooting. The prime suspect still has not been located. Much of the search effort today focused on the water of the Androscoggin River. And Pierce Brian Mann was at that river earlier today while state police divers were in it. Hey, Brian. Okay, so what were these divers looking for exactly in that river? Yeah, one possibility here is that Robert Card, the prime suspect, is no longer alive, that he took his own life. Authorities aren't speculating about this. They won't reveal the contents of a note that they have now confirmed that they found on one of his family's properties. But what they're doing now is searching the river bottom, searching the bank of the Androscoggin River and nearby forests. Mark Lottie with the Maine Department of Fisheries and Wildlife helped coordinate this part of the search today, uh, which actually took place where Robert Card's car was found at a boat launch. In these type of searches, sometimes the best thing is that we're able to eliminate an area and go to another area. By clearing the banks, 
uh, clearing the island, we can send some of our searchers into other areas. So you can hear Elsa there, they're describing this as progress, but no big clues found, no breakthroughs so far today. No idea if he's dead or alive. Okay, well, I understand questions are being raised about how Card was able to even have those powerful firearms, even though there were concerns about his mental health, right? What do we know about that? Yeah, this is interesting. He was an Army reservist, and last summer, concerns were raised by military officials about his erratic behavior. He was taken to a hospital at one point. It's still unclear whether police here in Maine were warned of threats or safety concerns linked to CARD that might have triggered the state's yellow flag law, which in theory allows police to seize guns from people who might be at risk to themselves or others. Mike Sashak, who's commissioner of the Maine Department of Public Safety, was asked about this this morning. Well, I'm heavily involved in the yellow flag conversation overall, but the reality for today uh, is I'm not going to talk specifically about who knew what and when. We're still actively involved in a very dynamic situation here. There will be a time. Can you confirm warnings were issued? I cannot. I cannot confirm that one. So So again, Elsa, there's a lot we don't know here, but speaking yesterday, Maine's Republican Senator Susan Collins also raised this issue. She said more could have been done to protect this community. It certainly seems that on the basis of the facts that we have, that the yellow flag log should have been triggered if, in fact, the suspect was hospitalized for two weeks for mental illness. He should have been separated from his weapons. So pressure is really growing on law enforcement to talk about what they knew about Robert Card before this attack and what actions they did or didn't take. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, are these shelter-in-place orders still in effect, and how are people dealing with them? Yeah, so far it is still in place, and we're seeing more people out and about, more shops opening up, but schools are still closed, kids' sports canceled or delayed, Halloween celebrations canceled. A lot of this region still feels empty, you know, no cars out on the roads. One really big deal here is that Maine is going into deer hunting season. That starts tomorrow. So in theory, that means a lot of people with rifles out in the woods near Lewiston. State officials have been asked repeatedly how they're going to handle that with cards whereabouts still unknown. They say they're trying to come up with a plan. But so far, no clarity and no clarity from officials on how long they're going to ask people to hunker down. We're getting the sense from police that they think this search could go on a long time. And Brian, what are we learning so far about the victims? Well, Maine's chief medical examiner has confirmed to NPR in an email that all 18 people who died have now finally been identified. They range in age from 14 to 76. Uh, Those lost include Joe Walker, the bar manager at Shemengi's, where one of the shootings took place. His dad told NBC News that Joe was a great son and a loving husband. Trisha Asselin worked at uh, the bowling alley where more of the violence took place. She was remembered as fun and happy-go-lucky. One thing we are hearing now is that officials are trying to help arrange public vigils, places to gather. Uh, that's been delayed so far by these lockdowns. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Republican infighting over the House Speaker has ended, but it hasn't stopped the debate over the role that former President Donald Trump played in picking that new leader. The new Speaker, Congressman Mike Johnson, is already being called MAGA Mike by Trump and others, but many here in Washington say the three weeks of chaos that led to Johnson's new position revealed more about Trump's limitations than his power. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports. 
It wasn't long after the removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker that former President Donald Trump was inserting himself into the Speaker's race. If I can help them during the process, I would do it. He talked about traveling to the Capitol to weigh in. He flirted with the idea of taking over the role himself. Then he endorsed Jim Jordan, one of his top allies on Capitol Hill. Excuse me. Excuse me. But Trump's championing was not enough to unify the increasingly angry conference. Can we find somebody in here? Can anybody here tell me we got somebody in here and get the 217? That's Congressman Troy Nels, who voiced the frustrations of so many Republicans. And once Jordan flamed out, Trump said he would try to stay out of the race. But that didn't last long at all. Just hours after Representative Tom Emmer won the nomination next, Trump went on the attack. He called Emmer a globalist rhino who was out of touch with Republican voters and his Make America Great Again movement. He was at MAGA. Most people are MAGA in the Republican Party. They want to see our country be great again. But while many people in Washington saw Emmer's downfall as a sign of Trump's growing power, others, like Michael Short, who worked for Trump at the White House, saw the limits of his old boss's strength. The speaker debacle shows that, you know, Trump's grip on the conference isn't you know, ironclad, right? Short said Trump can play the spoiler for Emmer, but he could not play the kingmaker for Jordan. You know, he has the ability to cause problems for people and knock people out, but getting his preferred candidates, you know, where he wants to get them has been something he has not been successful at doing. It's not like Emmer didn't already have troubles before Trump torpedoed the nomination. Emmer won the most support, but he was still short 26 votes when he could only afford to lose four. Trump did not kill Emmer. He's taking credit for it, but he didn't kill Emmer. Emmer was done. Doug High used to work for Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. He said Emmer had too many problems with too many Republicans. One member in conference told him he had to get right with God because of gay marriage, right, which is insane. High said Johnson's election reflected more on the exhaustion in the Republican Party rather than Trump's influence. And Trump waited until the 11th hour to endorse Johnson, when it was already clear he had the support to win the race. But if you look at Johnson's resume, he does have a long list of Trump bona fides. Johnson pushed Trump's false claims about election fraud, and he was a key architect of the effort to overturn the 2020 election. And Trump world is claiming Johnson as one of their own. MAGA is ascendant. Matt Gates spearheaded the effort to oust Kevin McCarthy. He went on a podcast hosted by Trump's old campaign chair, Steve Bannon. He claimed Johnson's victory proves Donald Trump continues to dominate the Republican Party. If you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, then you're not paying attention. It's pretty clear everyone is paying attention now. The question is how much power Trump will wield over Johnson and the House, especially going into the election in 2024. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. You know, Juana, sometimes the scariest thing around Halloween is not having a costume ready, right? So we have called an expert. All you need is a black garbage bag. That's Amy Panos from Better Homes and Gardens magazine. And she says with a quick cut and paste, you'll be ready to fly. Just cut a scalloped pattern in kind of a half circle shape out of the bag. Those are your wings. Wear it with a black t-shirt or sweatshirt and black sweats. And there you have a super easy, super cheap, practically free bat costume. 
I mean, assuming you're artistic. But, <laughs> you know, if you're not looking to soar solo, you can also DIY with your BFF. That would be going as the it couple of the moment, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. You can abbreviate that trailer if you're in the know. One person would wear a red football jersey. Travis plays for the Chiefs and his color is red. And the other person, the fun part, could just choose one of Taylor Swift's many different looks from her many different eras. And bonus points for a long blonde wig with bangs. <laughs> if you're set on what to wear but still looking for what to serve, Panos suggests, well, a snack-o-lantern. Basically, you're going to make our charcuterie board that is the color and shape of a jack-o'-lantern. You can pile up orange snack foods like orange cheeses, carrots, even cheddar cheese popcorn. But then the most important part is the black that you need for the jack-o'-lantern's smile and eyes. For that, you could use black jelly beans, blackberries, anything that's small, black, and can be sort of shaped into a smile and eyes. Okay, but as a procrastinator, I have to know, what about the decorations? One easy and fun idea would be to make sort of candle holders that look like mummies. <laughs> and then all you're going to do is wrap them around with either white gauze or you could use even white crepe paper. You're just going to like wind it around loosely and tape it in the back. And then here's the key. You're going to want to add googly eyes on the front. For more last-minute ideas, Amy Pano says Better Homes and Gardens has a whole issue called Halloween Tips and Tricks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here on 90.9 WBUR this afternoon. Up next on All Things Considered, doctors in Gaza make life and death decisions about who they can treat as supplies run out and hospitals that are open are overwhelmed. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with Gaslight, a new adaptation of the gripping psychological thriller now through November 5th. Tickets at MRT.org. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. On Wall Street, stocks mostly ended the week on a downswing. The Dow fell more than 1% or 367 points. The S&P dropped half a percent and NASDAQ gained 0.4%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio. To help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In sports, the Celtics take on the Miami Heat at the Garden in their second game of the season tonight. The Seas beat the Knicks in their season opener on Wednesday.
It'll be mostly clear out tonight. The low will be around 60 degrees. Looks like it'll be perfect tomorrow for fall yard cleanup, leaf peeping, or hiking. We'll have lots of sunshine, highs in the upper 70s to low 80s. Sunday will be a lot cooler in the mid to upper 50s. Clouds will move in and we'll have a chance of rain starting in the afternoon Sunday. Then more rain and in the upper 50s on Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Just hours ago, Israel began intensifying its bombing campaign and ground operations in Gaza. This is nearly three weeks after the Hamas attack that Israel says killed 1,400 people. Since then, Gaza officials say Israeli attacks on Gaza have killed more than 7,000 people there. Today's stepped-up attacks announced by Israel seem to begin right as we had reached our producer on the ground in southern Gaza, Anas Baba. Hi, Anas, are you able to hear us? Yeah, hi. Sorry, the signal isn't that, like, perfect. It's okay. It's a bit like, yeah, it's a little bit bouncy. It's maybe you're going to hear me and maybe not. I think we should go ahead and get into it while your signal sounds good, yeah? Sure. All right. Um, I'll try. I'll try. This is going to be a little bit Okay. Anas was with us for a few more seconds before his call dropped, and not long after that, Palestinian cell phone and internet companies reported that Israeli strikes caused a complete communication blackout in Gaza. We kept trying to reach Anas. Welcome to Uridu. The number you are calling is currently unreachable. Please try again later. Hours later, he regained internet for just a few minutes and texted, I'm alive. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Juana. So, Daniel, what can you tell us so far about this new development in the war? Israeli Army spokesman Daniel Hagari uh, told reporters that the Air Force has increased its bombing campaign in Gaza. It's hitting underground targets, which is where Hamas has tunnels and fighters. And he said that Israel's ground troops are expanding their ground maneuvers. Now, till now, Israel has only done limited ground incursions, uh, but the army says it is attacking Gaza City and its surroundings. There are reports already of Israeli tanks inside Gaza exchanging gunfire with militants. I asked an army spokesman, does this mean the beginning of a ground invasion? And all he said was the military operation is expanding. Uh, but it does certainly resemble the kind of intensive bombardment that would characterize the start of a major ground offensive. Um, and Israel's goal is to eliminate Hamas's military capabilities after um, Hamas stunned Israel earlier this month with a massacre uh, of Israelis in the south. We mentioned, of course, that communications blackout. But, Daniel, what can you tell us about how this is affecting life in Gaza right now? 
Right. Well, I mean, for several hours uh, after you tried to reach uh, our producer, Amanas Baba, the, the phone lines, the mobile networks, Internet were not working. Uh, we had very little idea of what was happening inside Gaza. Uh, we got back in touch briefly with Anas Baba, but now uh, the phone lines are all down again. Mm -hmm. And this is making rescue efforts really difficult inside Gaza. There is not a way now for people to call ambulances and first responders. The United Nations humanitarian coordinator for the Palestinian territories, Lynn Hastings, tweeted, Gaza has lost contact with the outside world. She said, hospitals and humanitarian operations cannot continue without communications. Uh, now, our producer, Anas Baba, uh, is not in Gaza City. He has evacuated. Uh, but I have not been able to reach neither him nor our other NPR colleague, Hamad um, Dremli, who works as a driver for NPR and helps report for us, he is in Gaza City still, and this is the area that's now being bombarded. Okay. Daniel, how likely is this to affect the next... How is this likely to affect the next stages of the war? It raises serious questions about diplomatic efforts that we have been hearing about to release the 229 Israeli and foreign hostages who were taken back to Gaza in the Hamas attacks this month. Um, so we're going to have to also see if Hamas now intensifies its rocket fire onto Israel. A rocket hit a building in Tel Aviv earlier today and caused some injuries. There is also the prospect uh, that the conflict could spread throughout the Middle East. There were pro-Hamas marches in the occupied West Bank tonight. Um, but if this is truly the prelude to the anticipated ground invasion that we've all been hearing about, um, it could mean many months of fierce urban combat inside Gaza. That could lead to heavy casualties, both of Israeli soldiers and especially of Palestinian fighters and civilians. And this is a war, of course, that has already seen absolutely catastrophic death tolls, both in Israel and in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you, as always, for your reporting. You're welcome, Moana. Since the war began, reporter Ari Daniel has been keeping in touch with a couple of doctors in Gaza. They've been treating people wounded by the airstrikes pretty much around the clock in crisis conditions. Daniel reached out to them earlier today before Gaza lost both phone and Internet service. When I called up Jamal Abu Hilal on WhatsApp today, I caught him in the middle of his rounds to see patients. He's an orthopedic surgeon at the European Gaza Hospital in southern Gaza, which, like other health facilities in the enclave, is overrun with the wounded. We have in our hospital more than 200 injured patients. Most of them are open wound with fracture, multiple fractures. Just, just I will show you. Abu Hilal switches us over to a video call for a few seconds, long enough for me to see someone's lower leg sliced open. He'll dress the wound, but there will be no surgery for this patient, he says. Because there is a lack of anesthesia, equipment, and even personnel. is very difficult. I will show you another one. This time, I see a man with severe burns modeling his torso and legs. And then Abu Hilal shows me something else. Patients sitting and standing in the hallway. There's just not enough room for everyone. It's the same at Ashifa Hospital in northern Gaza. 550 beds, but twice as many patients. Here's Dr. Mohammed Matar. They put something like a tent in the ground outside the hospital in front of the emergency department to put some of the injured patients there. 
Matar says that with so many wounded patients, surgeons don't have the time for complicated operations, so they must make difficult choices, like amputating a limb, whereas normally they might try to save it. And he tells me these decisions often mean choosing the life of one patient at the expense of another. It takes a heavy toll. Even some of the doctors, medical staffs, they are saying, what is the benefit of the hell what we are doing now? We are not able to help patients anymore. We cannot do anything for them. Matar says that an Israeli ground invasion would bring even more injured people to the battered hospitals of Gaza. There'd be bullet wounds and blast injuries from the tanks. Matar worries it would be more perilous for ambulances. Conditions are not good now, but we expect with the ground operation to be worse and more tragic, actually. At night, Matar says Ashifa fills with thousands of patients seeking refuge from the Israeli air raids. But daylight's no perfect shield. Yesterday, Matar's father was killed in a bombardment. I'm trying to adapt, he says, but it's difficult. Ari Daniel, NPR News. PR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour, we'll hear from a former command officer from Boston Police about the challenges involved in a massive search like the one for the alleged gunman in the main mass shooting and how it brings up memories of the days following the Boston Marathon bombing. Mostly clear skies tonight. The low will be around 60. Tomorrow, a little late October treat. It'll be sunny and warm to around 80 degrees. Cooler in the mid-50s on Sunday with a chance of rain. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And the ICA. Innovative new art by Boston area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. I'm Peter Gross, in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we talked about how a live baby animal cam is getting us through the actor strike. This is where we're at now. A baby otter is the closest we can get to Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> On the radio, you can imagine we're all baby otters. So join us and special guest legendary lyricist Bernie Taupin on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Maine, still no sign of the man authorities say is their prime suspect in the mass shooting that left 18 people dead this week. The area remains under a shelter-in-place order as the search for Card continues. A car registered to Robert Card was found at a boat launch in Lisbon, Maine. Maine's Public Safety Commissioner Mike Soschuk says ground teams, aircraft, and underwater crews are focusing on sections of the Andrew Scoggin River. There's a lot of stuff going on here, but what matters to us, again, is the safety of our, our communities, the safety of our residents, 
Uh, we care about each and every one of them, as you do. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue to fight on their behalf to bring this individual to justice because we know that that has an impact on starting that healing process. The medical examiner says all 18 people killed have now been identified, and they ranged in age from 14 to 76 years old. The messaging app Telegram has blocked several channels associated with Hamas militants after pressure from Apple and Google. And Piers Bobby Allen says that move comes despite the chief executive of Telegram's previous defense of hosting Hamas content. Most major social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and X ban accounts with ties to Hamas. But Telegram took a different approach. The Russian tech mogul Pavel Durov, who is based in Dubai, has said the channels broadcasting live footage from the war provide important messages to Palestinian civilians. But now, major Hamas channels with hundreds of thousands of followers are no longer accessible on Telegram because Apple and Google found that the accounts violate each company's app store rules, which ban content that promotes terrorist attacks. Durov, who has not commented on the restrictions, previously pointed out that the Hamas accounts warn Palestinian civilians about airstrikes and provide updates about hostages. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR. The damage is extensive in Mexico, near where Otis came ashore as a Category 5 hurricane earlier this week. At least 27 people are dead. NPR's Ader Peralta reports from Acapulco. Three days after Hurricane Otis made landfall, we are finally hearing the sounds of recovery. The military is on the streets. They're using machetes to clear trees from the roads. Trucks and heavy machinery from the capital city are now on the streets. But the destruction here is vast. About 80% of hotels have been damaged. But the government has still not given a comprehensive assessment of just how bad things are. The president says aid is on the way. But at the moment, very little has made it into Acapulco. The city is in ruins and chaos reigns. People are looting supermarkets and malls and pharmacies. And without internet or phones or even radio, residents here don't know what to do or what to expect. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Acapulco. In New York City, officials are stepping up efforts to transport migrants out of its overcrowded shelter system, offering a new reticketing center in Manhattan where asylum seekers can get free one-way tickets to anywhere in the world. It's the city's latest bid to ease pressure on its shelters following the arrival of more than 130,000 migrants since last year. New York's mayor is warning that shelters are so full that migrants will soon be forced onto the streets just ahead of winter. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The rollout of the new COVID vaccine is off to a sluggish start six weeks after it was introduced. New data from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health show just 9% of residents have received a shot so far. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports. Supply delays made for a bumpy start to this fall's COVID vaccination effort. There's a lot more vaccine available now, but public health officials say the number of people getting shots is lagging. They acknowledge that people are tired of COVID and tired of getting shots. But Larry Madoff, infectious disease doctor at the Department of Public Health, says the new vaccine offers important protection. Even if you've had COVID, you should still get vaccinated. It adds to your protection makes it less likely that you'll get long COVID, makes it less likely that you'll have a severe infection. Madoff says he's optimistic that more people will roll up their sleeves for COVID shots and flu shots before the peak of respiratory virus season. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCleskey. 
Scientists spotted a rare sperm whale and an even more rare sperm whale calf in the waters off Massachusetts this month. They were included in a recent survey of the Seamounts Marine National Monument. That's about 130 miles off Cape Cod. The New England Aquarium's Sharon Sue says this was the first time a calf was spotted in years of surveying the area. This is an area that obviously hosts, you know, a large number of animals, including ones that are rarely seen, such as the sperm whale and the sperm whale calf. And so it's going to be, it's going to need, I guess, extra protection. The Obama administration designated the roughly 5,000-square-mile area National Marine Monument in 2016. A longtime Boston radio host has died. WZLX announced this morning Kevin Carlson died unexpectedly. Carlson was on the classic rock station for 20 years. Boston's annual Antiquarian Book Fair kicks off today. The fair features rare printed books from around the world. Some are centuries old. Ken Gloss is the proprietor of Brattle Bookshop, and he's been on the fair's board for 46 years. He says the fair makes history accessible to the public in new ways. Touching it, it sort of still sends a chill up my spine. And people think, well, you can see those in museums, you can see them, but they're under glass cases here. You can talk to people about them. You can hold them. You can have them in your hands. Gloss says prices for rare books will range from under $100 to millions of dollars. The festival runs through Sunday. It's 436. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu together. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight. The low will be around 60 degrees. Tomorrow looks like a wonderful day to be outside. We'll have tons of sunshine. Highs in the upper 70s to low 80s. Sunday should be quite a bit cooler in the mid to upper 50s. Clouds will move in. We'll have a chance of rain starting in the afternoon. Then more rain and temps in the upper 50s on Monday. It's 78 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. The manhunt for the alleged gunman in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting and the lockdown of the surrounding communities is reminding many people in the Boston area of the days following the marathon bombing in 2013. Most residents of the Lewiston area have been sheltering in place since they got word of the shooting. It happened Wednesday night when a man used an assault-style rifle to open fire in a bowling alley and a bar a few miles away. 18 people were killed and 13 injured. Authorities have issued an arrest warrant for 40-year-old Robert Card, charging him with eight counts of murder. Joining us for more on what goes into a massive search like this is Daniel Linsky. He's the former superintendent-in-chief of the Boston Police Department. He served 27 years on the force, including through the Boston Marathon bombing. And he now heads the Boston office of a global security consulting firm. Hi, Dan. Good afternoon. How are you? 
Okay, thanks. Thanks for being with us. First, what have you been thinking about in the last 40-plus hours since word got out about the mass shooting in Maine and the gunman being at large? Has it brought you back to 2013 and the marathon bombing? It certainly has. Um, you know, what I've been thinking is praying and, and reaching out to my colleagues that are in that area that are responsible for this response and uh, wishing them the best and, you know, giving them some thoughts and ideas on mistakes we made and things we did right that they can maybe benefit from. When you say mistakes and, and things you learned from, what are you referring to? For example, in the marathon response, we had the good news is you're not in it alone. Every cop, every sheriff, every deputy, every agent is coming to help you. The bad news is if you don't control that response, sometimes it can exacerbate the challenge you have in front of you. Where else is a self-deploying, where information is coming in fast and furious and it's not being vetted, and you go down a rabbit hole that if you had slowed it down a little bit and vetted the information, you wouldn't have gone down that rabbit hole. So there's always a fog of war in these types of things, and it's helpful to make sure people are doing things at the direction of the incident command team, not self-deploying. We've been hearing for the last day or so that Robert Card could be anywhere in the region. He could be alive and hiding out somewhere, or there's the possibility, of course, that he took his own life. His car was found next to a boat ramp on a river in Lisbon, Maine. Where does your mind go in all of this as a longtime investigator? And based on what you've been seeing and hearing so far, what would your focus be? You know, so these events, these are individuals intent on suicide. The majority of these events end with the individual either taking their life or being killed by law enforcement or an individual who stands up to them during the attack. So suicide is clearly a possibility there. Uh, of course, we should however, say we, we don't know exactly what is going on or what was going on in his mind and, and whether that is the case. Exactly. But uh, that's the case in most of these types of cases in, in these mass casualty events. That doesn't mean that he hasn't had some elaborate plan to try and get out of the area and you know, continue his destruction someplace else. So we're searching the area where the vehicle was lost, see if we can find somebody who hurt themselves after they committed these crimes. I'm also looking for avenues of escape. I'm going to be looking at his digital footprint. Then we also have to figure out what's the area, what's the terrain up there. Uh, there's lots of woods. Does he have the ability, the capability, and the equipment to be in the woods and live for the next couple of weeks? Are there vacant vacation homes, uh, cabins that he might be in, hiding in, waiting for his next move? What has stood out to you, given what we've learned about Robert Card's history of mental health issues that came to light during some military service this past summer? Uh, he was apparently brought in for psychiatric evaluation, but it seems nothing came of that. And uh, some officials have raised that issue that something should have been done, potentially the yellow flag law in Maine implemented, put into action where um, his access to guns could have been cut off, um, his ability to get a gun or possess a gun. And it seems like that did not happen. So what has stood out to you in all of that? Yeah, we have to evaluate whether the law as it stands in Maine would have allowed medical authorities to report the information they had and would have allowed law enforcement to effectively get firearms away from that individual's custody and care and prevent him from attaining others. I believe HIPAA often cuts in the line here. Um, and that's and the law that, that uh, protects people's privacy when it comes to their medical information. Exactly. And if you, if you have a, a seizure in a motor vehicle, doctors have to notify the registry of motor vehicles and your right to drive a vehicle is taken away until you can prove that you're medically cleared again. If I'm homicidal and suicidal talking to a clinician about voices in my head, then I believe the same 
sensitivity and uh, seriousness of that notification needs to occur where law enforcement can hopefully get that information and then make efforts to take those weapons away uh, and ensure that everyone in the area is safe. Thanks so much. Dan Linsky, former superintendent and chief of the Boston Police Department, now a global security risk consultant. Dan, thanks. Thank you. As authorities continue to search for the suspect in the main shootings, families of students at some area colleges are bringing their kids back to Massachusetts. That's despite a statewide lockdown order that continues in Maine. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Marcus Davis began his college career just over a month ago at Bates College in Lewiston. He's an offensive lineman on the football team at Bates, where both his parents went to college. The 18-year-old Newton native says since the lockdown went into effect Wednesday night, he felt safe being in a dorm made of cinder blocks. But there's been a sense of unease on the campus. People were uncertain, like, what was going to happen. Uh, we weren't aware where the shooter was at the time. Um, so it was a little chaotic in that sense, uh, just due to the lack of information. That's Davis in the car with his dad. After nearly 36 hours in his dorm, Davis wondered if he could go home to Newton until the shooting suspect is caught. Football and other activities are canceled for the weekend, according to Maine College websites. There are uh, a number of students who have chosen to remain on campus. Uh, however, there are also a good majority of students who have chosen to leave as well. Um, in communicating with people on the football team, uh, there have been a number of people that have decided to, to travel home, see their families, and just sort of get off campus. His father, Roland Davis, said he got a text from Marcus this morning asking to be picked up. My understanding is that there's still a shelter-in-place order, and so no permission had been given. I think people just made decisions, and I made the decision that I was going to go up and, and get my son. By 2 p.m., he was on campus in Lewiston, and this afternoon, they drove back to Newton. Officials at Bates did not immediately respond to a request for comment, but a post on the school's website asks students to follow the shelter-in-place order from the state. Davis says he's happy to have his son at home until officials find the suspect in a shooting that's claimed 18 lives. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. And Bates College has now told us, despite the lockdown, students are free to leave. This week's mass shooting in Maine is the deadliest so far this year. Let's see how it fits into the bigger picture of gun violence and crime in the U.S., the FBI's annual crime report is the most complete view of these trends nationwide. NPR criminal justice reporter Meg Anderson has been reviewing the newest report for the year 2022 since it came out last week. Hi, Meg. Hi there. So, Meg, let's start by talking about the relatively good news in this report. Homicides in general did decrease last year. Is that right? Yeah, but first, a grain of salt. This data is definitely spotty. Um, for one, it's just reported crimes, and we know that many crimes go unreported. And it's also submitted voluntarily by law enforcement, and participation is pretty uneven. But it still accounts for most of the country. All that being said, violent crime in general was down, including rape and aggravated assault, and homicides fell by around 6%. And that was a huge relief because in 2020, the U.S. saw the largest rise in killings in more than a century. Um, so I talked to Ames Grauert at the Brennan Center for Justice about that, and he said that COVID probably played a role in that rise. The disorder of the pandemic and the stress that caused on you know, all of our social institutions, the way it shut down key parts of communities like, uh, you know, violence intervention programs, schools, libraries, things like that, 
you shouldn't understate the impact of those things. He said that it's possible that the decrease that we're seeing now is a sign that the chaos of 2020 is starting to recede. But we still aren't back to where we were in 2019. And when it comes to gun violence, we saw nearly 500,000 violent crimes that involved a firearm, a slight increase over the year before, and juvenile gun fatalities rose significantly, up by 12 percent. This report didn't look at mass shootings, but given the events in Maine this week, the data really underscores that we still have an incredible amount of gun violence in this country. Okay, so what about other kinds of crime last year that didn't involve guns? I'm thinking like nonviolent property theft, for example. So reports of larceny, that includes shoplifting, were up, and car theft in particular was up by more than 10 percent. And experts say the main driver of that spike is actually a TikTok video, which exposed that Hyundai and Kia cars are relatively easy to steal. An important thing to note is that this is a one-year increase, and give or take a few ebbs and flows, property crime has actually been trending downward since the 80s. And Meg, we know that reports of hate crimes have been on the rise in recent years. From this report, does that hold true for last year? It does. So there were more than 11,000 reported hate crimes last year, and that number is likely an undercount because recording a hate crime relies on police figuring out someone's motive. But Incha Rahman at the Vera Institute of Justice told me marginalized communities don't really need data to understand that rise. The stabbing of a six-year-old Muslim boy or swastikas on a synagogue up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, like those are the things that really sort of drive perception and fear. So what I'm hearing there is that she's saying that perception does drive how people think about crime. Like when you hear about horrible crimes like the horrific crime in Chicago, it might feel like there's more violent crime happening in general. So the perception of crime and the actual level of crime aren't always aligned. For instance, in a morning consult poll from last year, most people surveyed thought violent crime was up nationwide, when, of course, we know that it wasn't. Uh, And when I talked to Ames Groward at the Brennan Center about that, he said policymakers often talk about crime as if it were a few years ago. And that means we're always a little behind the times when it comes to talking about public safety. That's NPR's Meg Anderson. Thank you. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks so much for being with us this afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up after the top of the hour, Americans are spending freely on cars, concert tickets, and more. But incomes aren't keeping pace with spending, so how long can it all go on? New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space Tuesday, November 7th, to discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Walden Local Meat, nourishing communities with sustainable meat and seafood from local farmers delivered right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Now through November 5th. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. In sports, the Celtics take on the Miami Heat tonight at the Garden. It's their second game of the season. The Seas beat the Knicks in their season opener on Wednesday night. 
And taking a look at the forecast, skies will clear out for the most part tonight. Temps will only dip to about 60. Tomorrow might make up for the dreary, wet weekends as of late. It'll be sunny with temperatures near 80 degrees. Looks like it's going to get cloudy on Sunday with a chance of showers by that afternoon. The high Sunday will be in the upper 50s. Then we're looking at high 50s for Monday, and the rain will stick around to start the work week. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston with partly cloudy skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stepping Stone for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at steppingstone.org. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. And Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood is being torn apart by opioid addiction. The drug dealer is aggressive. Like, you know, there's times when we try to outreach with some of this community, and the drug dealer's like, "Mm mm-mm. How does a community reclaim its streets and recover? That story and the latest from the Middle East, Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The man behind the mouth is Daphnis Prieto. He's not a singer, but he sure makes good music. And he's coming to Boston this weekend with his newest musical partner. Claimed vocalist Luciana Souza joins him on Cantar, the album they've taken on the road. Daphnis Prieto is a Grammy Award-winning drummer, composer, teacher, MacArthur Genius Fellow winner, and as of this, his ninth album, he's a lyricist. To satisfy his urge to experiment, he wrote the songs in three languages, English, Spanish, and Portuguese. And to feed his need to innovate, he and Souza lace percussive vocalization with straight-ahead melody. I'm of the approach that everything should be singable, and to me that's a very distinctive quality that I like to exploit in my music. Yeah, it should be singable, but it's all relative. I mean, when you (laughs) hear some of the songs, it's a little difficult. I mean, you're having Luciana do some really funky tempo, and it's Mm -hmm. beautiful, but, like, not easy. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, I I didn't say anything about easy. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about singing, I do this rhythmic vocalization in many of my shows. And it's this thing which is very percussive oriented and kind of uh, imitating different sounds of percussion or drums. You know, in a way, it's really deep rooted into my knowledge of rhythms and things like that. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that, about how it, it reaches into your roots rhythmically. Well, I was born in a very humble, poor neighborhood in Cuba, in Santa Clara, where I used to listen to percussion. And this is something that I've been doing just for fun 
to imitate sounds with my voice. Like if I do something like a So that's basically a similar similar kind of introduction that I do. Easy for that, you to say. In, in that song, yeah. Well, you know, the beauty of being a human is that we all learn from each other. So I think that music to me is natural. So the, the level of difficulty when you grow up in that kind of environment changes because everything starts being a little bit more natural and more accessible in your imagination and in your willpower to do. Was the song The Muse, which is in English, was that much of a change for you? Was that much of a, a stretch or a departure? Well, actually, that song is, is very interesting because this song, The Muse, I had the music written and I had actually all the lyrics written. But when I show it to Luciana, Luciana wanted to update some parts of the lyrics of it. And I knew it was going to be much more poetic if I let her fix a few things here and there. Like earth and wind and water, fire, rain, just like the sun. Like clouds and sky, she holds a truth that no one can deny. She takes shape without me knowing, takes her time. And when she blossoms, she then takes her space inside me. the muse ah it's a feeling it's almost like a spiritual encounter and it's not something physical like a like a woman that you can say is a beautiful thing it's actually the creative process of the creator in this case me the relationship that i have and how i deal with opening myself to let the muse get in to enhance creativity so I think that's that's the beautiful thing that Luciana captured. So she almost brought the muse. I mean, the, the collaboration yeah, became did. the muse. Yeah, she did, indeed. Yes. Thank you, Daphnis Prieto. We look forward to welcoming you to Boston this weekend. Thank you very much, Lisa, for this opportunity, and I hope to see you and, and having a good time. Thank you very much. Grammy Award winners Daphnis Prieto and Luciana Souza perform music from their album Cantar Saturday night as part of the Celebrity Series at the Berkeley Performance Center in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. The nice weather continues to start the weekend. Skies will be mostly clear tonight, around 60 degrees. Then tomorrow, upper 70s to low 80s with lots of sun. Sunday should be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers by afternoon and temps in the mid to upper 50s. It's 78 degrees in Boston, coming up to 5 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business powering possibilities and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. A morning edition host Rupa Shanoi and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Americans seem to be spending freely on cars, concert tickets, and more. But incomes aren't keeping pace with spending, and that's raising questions about how long it can all continue. It's Friday, October 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, intermittent fasting is popular for weight loss. Now a new study finds it might help with diabetes, too. Also, new research shows the moon appears to be roughly 40 million years older than previously thought. A 14-year-old high school freshman has invented a bar of soap that may be used to treat skin cancer. Slowly as I grew up, curiosity started to develop, just started doing experiments, and then slowly even that turned into my bar of soap as the project. America's top young scientist says he wants to make cancer treatment cheaper and more accessible. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel is intensifying its bombing campaign and ground maneuvers in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estern reports from Tel Aviv. It comes as Israel is preparing for a likely ground invasion of Gaza. Israeli Army spokesman Daniel Hagari said in a live video statement that the Air Force has increased its bombing campaign in Gaza, hitting underground targets, and ground troops are expanding their ground activities. It is some of the most intense bombing of Gaza in the three weeks of the Hamas-Israel war. It appears to be focused in Gaza City and the surrounding area of northern Gaza. Palestinian cell phone and internet companies said the Israeli strikes led to a complete communications blackout in Gaza. This comes as Israel is preparing for a massive ground invasion that would likely mark a significant and deadly turning point in a war that has already seen catastrophic death tolls in both Israel and Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. No reports of big breakthroughs in the search for Robert Card. He is the man authorities say is their prime suspect in this week's mass shooting in Maine that left 18 people dead. Officials say they're focusing part of their search today on the Andrew Scoggin River. More from NPR's Brian Mann. A car registered to Robert Card was found at a boat launch in Lisbon, Maine. Mike Sashak, commissioner of the Maine Department of Public Safety, says ground teams, aircraft, and underwater crews will focus today's search on sections of the river. The Maine State Police dive team will be in the water and will be leading this initiative. And then along the shoreline, you're going to see 
uh, a line search, if you will. That means literally officers online as they're working that shoreline. Sashak declined to answer questions about whether police had been warned Robert Card might pose a risk to the community. This area of Maine remains under a shelter-in-place order as the search for Card continues. Brian Mann, NPR News, Lewiston. Following a tentative agreement with Ford, the union representing striking auto workers is now meeting with GM and Jeep owner Stellantis to try to hammer out a similar deal. The announcement of a tentative agreement came last night. Around 57,000 striking Ford workers will have to vote on the deal. GM and Stellantis are likely to follow the similar agreement, which among other things would raise wages by 25% over four years. Game one of the World Series is set for tonight with tex- the Texas Rangers hosting the Arizona Diamondbacks. NPR's Dave Mitzish reports both teams made it to the Fall Classic, making their way into the playoffs as wild cards. Just two years ago, the Diamondbacks and the Rangers each lost more than 100 games. And while being far from favorites this season, the Rangers beat the defending World Series champion Astros four times in Houston in the ALCS. The Diamondbacks picked off the Philadelphia Phillies in Game 7 while on the road. Taking the mound tonight for the Rangers will be veteran pitcher Nathan Avaldi. Zach Gallen, an all-star this year, will start for the Diamondbacks. NPR's Dave Mitzvich. On Wall Street, a mix closed. The Dow was down 366 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. More now on the Maine mass shootings. The Maine Medical Examiner's Office has identified all 18 victims of the mass shooting in Lewiston. The youngest victim was 14 and the oldest was 76. People in Lewiston and surrounding communities remain under a shelter-in-place order as authorities search for the alleged gunman. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Bates College canceled a major event today following the horrific attacks. It feels like just about everybody in Lewiston knows someone who was killed or injured in Wednesday night's mass shootings. That includes Gary Jenkins, the president of Bates College, who says one of his staff members was shot and wounded. Fortunately, he survived. We expect our colleague to make a full recovery, so we're grateful for that. But Jenkins says he's grieving for the 18 other people who died. He was supposed to be celebrating his inauguration today as Bates' first black president. But he says the safety of students and the community is his priority, so the celebration is off. It was a heartbreaking decision to have to cancel, but it was it was the right decision. Like much of Lewiston, Bates remains locked down for a second day in a row. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The city of Salem is anticipating huge crowds this weekend before Halloween. Salem Mayor Dominic Pangalo is urging visitors not to drive to his city, but to take the train or ferry. Weekend visitors are being advised to check ahead for tickets for tours or exhibits because many will sell out quickly. They say the mayor says the witch city has had about a million visitors this October. Quite a scene and what a noise on the Boston University campus this afternoon. Boston University Department of Physics hosted its annual pumpkin drop. Students dropped dozens of pumpkins filled with everything from whipped cream to liquid gas 70 feet off of the roof of the Bob Metcalf Auditorium on Commonwealth Ave. Sophomore Boomlik Midexa was walking to class when she caught the unusual scene. I think it's adorable that we're all gathering here just to watch a pumpkin drop. Not something you think is significant, but it's just fun to see people smile. BU says all of the smashed pumpkins will be composted. Taking a look at the forecast, it'll be mostly clear out tonight. The low will be around 60 degrees. Looks picturesque for tomorrow. Lots of sunshine, highs in the upper 70s to low 80s. This is WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Sci Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Numbers show that Americans bought a lot of cars and concert tickets last month. They also splurged on travel, shelling out for airline tickets and hotel rooms. All of that spending helped to keep the economy bubbling along, despite some of the highest interest rates in more than two decades. So how long can we keep this up? We're going to talk through that for a few minutes with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, there has been a whole lot of economic data out this week. You've been sifting through it. What is it telling us? It's telling us the consumer is king, or at least trying to live like one. Uh, This morning, we learned that personal spending got a big boost in September, and that spending was pretty widespread. Uh, As you mentioned, people bought a lot of cars last month, even though cars and car loans are pretty expensive these days. Economist Tim Quinlan of Wells Fargo says people spend a lot on services like travel and eating out as well hard to get a restaurant reservation, and despite all the worries about the housing market, hard to find a contractor to show up to the house to do work. So the strength in the service sector has been a lot more resilient than people would have thought even as recently as a few months ago. And those September numbers cap off a really strong quarter for the economy. GDP grew at an annual rate of just under 5% in the last three months. That's the best quarter of growth in nearly two years. And it was largely fueled by consumers who've defied expectations and just kept spending. Okay, keeping spending, but where are these people getting the money, Scott? Yes, that's the rub. We we do have a very strong job market. Unemployment's under 4%. So lots of people are working and wages have been going up. But the rise in paychecks last month did not keep pace with the rise in spending. So Quinlan says at some point, something's going to have to give. Obviously, you can eat into savings for a while. You can borrow from the credit card for a while. But this is not a sustainable framework for long-term spending growth. The personal savings rate soared early in the pandemic, but it has since dropped way down. People are now saving less than 4% of their disposable income. That's less than half the pre-pandemic savings rate. So there's not a lot of cushion there. I mean, Scott, thinking about this at a personal level, lately when I go to the grocery store, it feels like I'm just spending a ton more money than I used to to buy groceries for my household. And it adds up really quick. How much of this extra spending that we're talking about is just higher prices? Higher prices are a part of the story, but you know, spending rose faster than prices in September, so people are putting more into their shopping basket as well. Certainly, if inflation comes down, that helps, and it has come down a lot from its peak last summer, but prices are still going up faster than the Federal Reserve would like. Uh, Fed policymakers are set to meet uh, this coming week, and they're expected to hold interest rates steady, but they'll probably leave the door open to another rate hike in the future, if that's what it takes to get inflation all the way back down to 2%. There's been a lot of concern that the Fed's aggressive rate heights would tip the economy into a recession, and it seems to be going the other way. So what happened? Yeah, this is in the Timex economy. It takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I know that doesn't mean anything to people who just use their smartphone to tell time. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was interviewed on Bloomberg TV yesterday, and she gloated a little bit that this economy has defied all those gloomy forecasts. Uh, she acknowledged the economy is not likely to keep growing at the blistering pace it did last quarter, but she doesn't think it's going to go into a ditch either. You don't really see any sign of recession here. You know, what we have looks like a soft landing with very good outcomes for the U.S. economy. 
And if we do get a soft landing, it's the strong consumer that's keeping the jets from sputtering out along the way. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks. You're welcome. For two days, people living in Lewiston, Maine, and the surrounding communities have been on lockdown as police hunt for a man who suspected of fatally shooting 18 people and wounding 13 others at a bowling alley and a restaurant on Wednesday. There's nothing more frightening than the idea that someone is out there who's already done a mass killing and still possesses weapons. That's Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, a Democrat from Maine. Her offices are in Portland, and she says schools and businesses were shut down there, too. You couldn't buy a cup of coffee on Commercial Street in Portland yesterday. Everything was shut down, our schools, our businesses. And today may be more of the same. There's just a really terrifying feeling. It's a feeling echoed by Betsy Sawyer Manter. She runs Seniors Plus, an organization that provides assistance for senior citizens in western Maine. They operate Meals on Wheels, and they're checking with their clients to see if they have enough food at home to get by for a few more days. The concern is, if we're in a shelter-in-place status, how safe are our volunteers going out into the community? But we will do the best we can to make sure that people don't go hungry. Well, as the community copes with a sudden and indefinite lockdown, law enforcement is working to locate the shooter. Kenneth Gray is a senior lecturer in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of New Haven. And before that, he was a special agent with the FBI for 24 years. He's here with us now to explain what this kind of search entails. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you. Okay, so just to make clear, Kenneth, you're not at all involved in advising the investigators conducting this search, but we wanted to give listeners some sense of what might be happening on the ground, and we're hoping you can help us do that. What stands out to you so far about this particular manhunt right now? So a lot of progress has been made on this case and that after the shooting occurred, uh, there was no knowledge of exactly who it was that was responsible for this. Within 12 hours, he had been identified, uh, his car was located, and uh, the, the hunt was on from there. The, uh, the investigation uh, actually has a couple of different moving parts. Mm -hmm. There is the manhunt itself. There is the investigation. There is evidence collection going on. There are interviews going on of uh, victims and victim families, and uh, a lot of different parts all being used together to try to c conduct this. Right, manner. a lot of different parts. But as you mentioned, Robert Card was identified as a person of interest pretty quickly after these shootings. And I imagine a lot of people out there right now are probably wondering what is taking so long to apprehend him, capture him, locate him. What would you say are some of the greatest challenges facing this investigation? S so when uh, a person disappears like this uh, into a very heavily wooded area, uh, you have no idea if they are actually still in the woods there, if they have uh, stolen a car and gotten out of the area or had prepositioned a car and gotten out of the area or, uh, or somehow else got uh, taken out of the area. So uh, the, the best thing you can do is uh, to start where the last known position was, mm -hmm. in this case, where his car was ditched there in Lisbon uh, by the boat ramp and start working out from there. And that is what law enforcement is doing. But they're also doing investigations to include interviewing family members, interviewing uh, friends, interviewing coworkers to see if there is information that could be used to try to help locate him. Apparently he left uh, a note in his home for his son that sounds like a, a suicide note. And while the details have not been shared with the public, 
that might be uh, indicative that uh, maybe uh, he went out into the woods to uh, to kill himself. Right, right. The possibility is out there that he is no longer alive. I'm curious, how much do you think his military training might have made this search harder? So a lot of has been made uh, in the media about the fact that he is a certified firearms instructor. But in reality, he's never been uh, deployed to a combat area. Uh, His job in the National Guard was handling fuel. Uh, He was a civilian certified firearms instructor and was very proficient with weapons. And he's also an avid outdoorsman. So with all that in mind, uh, uh, those things would help him. But the military aspect itself, I don't think that is that useful to him as far as staying uh, free from being found. Kenneth Gray, retired FBI special agent who now teaches in the criminal justice department at the University of New Haven. Thank you very much. Thank you. Meet America's top young scientist. Hi, my name is Heyman Beck-Ellett. I'm a 14-year-old going to Woodson High School in Fairfax, Virginia, and I was born in Ethiopia. Heyman Beck-Ellett is the winner of this year's 3M Young Scientist Challenge, in which middle schoolers tackle real-world problems through science. Beck-Ellett's submission was a bar of soap that he hopes will someday be able to treat skin cancer. It has a little bit of a bumpy texture to it. If you can imagine walking into the doctor's office, that smell that you get, that's exactly how it smells like, just it's definitely not like a lavender soap. It's It does have a strong, potent medicine smell to it. And it does have medicine in it. Bagella used computer models to test various combinations of medicinal ingredients. And with help from mentors at 3M and cancer researchers at the University of Virginia, he landed on a recipe for his soap. It's charged with different cancer-fighting chemicals, the main one being this drug that is commonly used for different antifungals and acne treatments and has recently been looked into in the field of skin cancer. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and millions of Americans seek treatment for skin cancer each year at a cumulative cost of nearly $9 billion. When I heard those really shocking statistics, it really inspired me to create a more affordable and accessible solution. Trying to tackle this problem through science was a natural choice for Beck-Ella. He says he's always been curious about how the world works. Slowly as I grew up, that curiosity started to develop into something more than that, just started doing experiments. I started working on different things, and then slowly even that turned into my bar of soap as the project. The soap hasn't been through any human testing yet, and Beckella would need to convince regulators at the Food and Drug Administration that the soap is safe and effective for skin cancer patients. That will take time, but Beckella said it's part of his plan for the next five years. In the meantime, he says winning this competition and the $25,000 cash prize gives him a big push to keep moving forward with his idea. It was definitely the best feeling I've ever had in my life, just because I did work really, really hard to get there, and not only did it make me feel so happy, but it made me feel motivated and inspired that my ideas can be heard, and at the same time, if I continue to work towards my goals, there's nothing I can't accomplish. That is Heyman Beck-Ella, America's top young scientist. Congratulations, Heyman. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in about 20 minutes here on All Things Considered, new research finds the moon appears to be about 40 million years older than previously thought. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped more than 1%, or 367 points. The S&P fell half a percent. NASDAQ picked up 0.4%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, hosting the annual Pumpkin Fest fundraiser with admission supporting cradles to crayons in Newton. Tomorrow, more at volantefarms.com. And Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October. Circlefurniture.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. When you get news alerts all day, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective and listen anywhere live on the WBUR app. Tonight will be a nice late October night, not very cool, around 60 degrees, and skies will be mainly clear. The weekend will start out beautiful, near 80, and mostly sunny tomorrow. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash afterthefact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. As the Israel-Hamas conflict has been intensifying, protesters have demanded a ceasefire. Many Jewish Americans have joined such protests, and some say they're sometimes met with hostility from within their own communities. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. Last weekend, Ali was kicked out of family Shabbat dinner. Ali is 21 years old and from New York. My dad is a staunch Zionist. He said something in the lines of me, like, you better not have gone to that protest. Ali has gone to many protests and has requested anonymity due to ongoing harassment. Ali has family in Israel, some currently in the Israel Defense Forces. And he was like, you are not welcome at this dinner table. Ali, who is at Columbia University, is part of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is vocally demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. What Ali wants beyond the ceasefire is to address the human rights violations Palestinians have endured over the years. My position as a Jew is that it has always been our responsibility, according to our religion, to stand up for all those who are targeted, all those who are oppressed, all those who are facing violence, because as a people, we've been persecuted for so long. Rabbi Ari Lev Fernari, also with Jewish Voice for Peace, says he's been hearing a lot of this lately. I don't know a single person in my community who hasn't had a fight with a family member in the last two weeks, self-included. And 
some of this is generational. Groups like Jewish Voice for Peace skew young, reflecting a shift in Jewish American political views. It also reflects the Israeli government's move to the far right, something which feels incompatible for many young liberal Jews. According to the Pew Research Center, around half of Jewish Americans over 65 say Israel is an essential part of their Jewish identity. For Jews under 29, that number goes down to 35 percent. Arno Rosenfeld writes for The Forward, a Jewish American publication. He says right now, The mainstream Jewish community has really unified behind a single message of solidarity with Israel and support for a military response to Hamas. And so really the only release valve for American Jews who are opposed to that or who are calling for a ceasefire are these youth-led movements. He also says beyond these movements, a lot of liberal Jewish people are feeling lost, like their synagogues have abandoned concerns for Palestinian civilians. In the last few weeks, Ali has felt this sense of placelessness. Through our emails, through our Instagram, have received like multiple death threats. And it gets very scary because the places where I'm supposed to feel safe to practice my faith and my culture on campus are now places where I'm I'm not welcome. Still, for many Jews, it's very difficult to reconcile a Jewish person protesting against Israel at this time. I was born in the 1960s, right? And we were really being raised by the post-Holocaust generation. Lisa Harris-Glass is the CEO of Rutgers Hillel, a Jewish campus organization at Rutgers University. She feels the protests, many are inciting anti-Semitic violence. Glass has a daughter around Ali's age. I remember giving birth to my daughter and holding her in my arms and thinking there are people who want to murder her because she exited my Jewish womb, that she is born a target. That's what it means to be Jewish. We have to care what happens in Israel because it's like your safety net. This echoes the position of many Jewish Americans, that Israel is defending itself and therefore Jewish people as a whole. And that is the fundamental disagreement with Jewish activist groups protesting against Israel. Rabbi Ari Lev Fernari from Jewish Voice for Peace says there's nothing inherently anti-Semitic about criticizing Israel's actions. If you told me to boil down like what is Judaism about, I would tell you tikkun olam. It means the repair of the world or the fixing. I don't, I don't want to be part of a Judaism that is taken in my name to kill and occupy and imprison uh, millions of Palestinians. He says protesters like him understand Jewish existential fear, but he doesn't want to become what he's afraid of. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Intermittent fasting is enjoying a moment in many American households. By some accounts, it's almost as popular as counting calories or plant-based diets. Now, new research bolsters the case that it can also be helpful for managing type 2 diabetes. NPR's Will Stone reports. A big reason why time-restricted eating, a form of intermittent fasting, can be so appealing is that it's simple and easy to stick with. You only eat during a certain window of time every day, typically lasting 6 to 10 hours. Research suggests this helps people lose weight because they just end up eating less. 
Dr. Joanne Bruno, an endocrinologist at NYU Langone Health, says she hears this from patients who've tried losing weight by counting calories. So there's something about not having to constantly think about how many calories we're eating. It feels a lot less restrictive and feels a lot more doable for patients. While it's still an emerging field, a growing number of studies do find that time-restricted eating can improve metabolic health and deliver weight loss. But few have looked at how this fares among people with type 2 diabetes. I think this is pretty exciting data. Bruno's talking about a new study published today that followed people with type 2 diabetes on a noon to 8 p.m. eating schedule. After six months, people had lost about 10 pounds. Meanwhile, it was about six pounds for those who tried to lose weight by counting calories. Krista Verity is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and led the study. I was surprised that they lost more weight. Verity says her other studies on time-restricted eating tend to find about the same amount of weight loss, not more. But she got a sense of what could be going on from interviews with participants in the study. People with type 2 diabetes are just so sick of being recommended calorie restriction because that's like the go-to diet. I think that's why they probably did better on this diet. They also tracked blood sugar levels. Both groups had about the same reductions after six months, improvements that Dr. Pam Taub calls clinically significant. Taub is a cardiologist at the University of California, San Diego. She says time-restricted eating has real potential for people with conditions affecting metabolic and cardiovascular health. You get the most bang for the buck with this type of population, and that's what really they showed. In fact, Taub's research has found that for people with metabolic syndrome, a 10-hour eating window improves their ability to manage blood sugar and reduces blood pressure and cholesterol. In an era of blockbuster weight loss and diabetes drugs, Taub says this study is an important reminder. When we have lifestyle and pharmacotherapy, it synergizes. So it's not one or the other. We need both strategies and lifestyle strategies are free. Taub says patients with type 2 diabetes should not try this without medical supervision because medications may need to be adjusted. The study only had 75 people, so Verity says larger trials are needed. She doesn't think the results prove that time-restricted eating is better than counting calories, just that it's another option to try. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the story of a baby born in Gaza amid abysmal and quickly deteriorating hospital conditions. All signs point toward a massive Israeli ground invasion of Gaza as the humanitarian crisis there grows more dire. The latest from Israel and Maine, plus wait, wait at 10 tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. We hope you can start your weekend here. The nice weather continues to start the weekend. Skies will be mostly clear tonight. It'll be around 60 degrees. Lots of sun nearing 80 degrees tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, 
Educating Toddler to Grade 8. Open House November 5th. More at Wellen.org. Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood is being torn apart by opioid addiction. The drug dealer is aggressive. Like, you know, there's times when we try to outreach with some of this community, and the drug dealer's like, mm-mm. How does a community reclaim its streets and recover? That story and the latest from the Middle East, Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Brussels, EU leaders addressing the crisis in the Middle East are calling for humanitarian pauses to get aid into Gaza, but they're also worried about the effects of the war on their own societies. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says disinformation and hate speech are on the rise across Europe. EU leaders agreed to call for humanitarian pauses to try to get aid to desperate Gazans. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the Israel-Hamas conflict also has the bloc worried about its own internal security. Leaders described the rapid spread of online hate speech and terrorist propaganda with the risk that this translates into violence and terrorist acts. France, with Europe's largest Muslim and Jewish populations, has had a lethal terrorist attack and hundreds of false bomb alerts. Von der Leyen said the EU may require social media platforms to flag and remove controversial content related to the Israel-Hamas war. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A Democrat from Minnesota will be challenging President Biden for the party's nomination next year. Congressman Dean Phillips' announcement comes after days of speculation that he would step down from his leadership role with the Democratic caucus. The 51-year-old says... His long-shot bid is what Americans are calling for, change. I love the president. I voted for his policies. I'm a Democrat. I support our policies and will continue to do so uh, with new twists, with new approaches and new visions. The issue right now is not who Joe Biden is, what we have done collectively. The issue is very singular. America wants change. Phillips missed the deadline to appear in Nevada's presidential primary in early February and has faced and has been uh, faced and accused of ignoring black and Latino voters, a cornerstone of the Democratic voting base. Phillips will be at the New Hampshire primary. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Public Safety Commissioner in Maine just announced the shelter-in-place order is being lifted in the Lewiston area. No hunting is being allowed in Lewiston and three neighboring communities. Mike Soschuk is the Commissioner of Maine Public Safety. The state police continue to search in Lewiston, Lisbon, Bowdoin, and Monmouth for the suspect, Robert Card, and recommend individuals remain vigilant. Businesses may choose to open or remain closed. Also, the state today released the names of the 18 victims of the mass shooting at a bowling alley and a bar in Lewiston. The Maine Educational Center for the Deaf says the shootings killed at least four members of their community. The educational center is located on an island in Falmouth, Maine, and today it became a site for grieving and sharing memories. Massachusetts Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling for a pause in the fighting in the Israel-Hamas war to allow for humanitarian aid to be delivered to civilians in Gaza. The senators are also calling for Hamas to release all of its hostages immediately and unconditionally. In their statement, Warren and Markey say Israel has a right to defend its citizens after Hamas's terrorist attacks. The state is giving the nonprofit CyberTrust Massachusetts more than $2 million with the goal of strengthening cybersecurity in cities and towns. 
The Healy administration says the money will help Massachusetts colleges and universities encourage students to pursue cybersecurity careers. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Fine Arts Boston, presenting Fashioned by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings with dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, Who Creates Your Image? on view through January 15th. Tickets at mfa.org. In sports, the Celtics face the Miami Heat at TD Garden in their second game of the season tonight. The Seas beat the Knicks in their season opener Wednesday. Skies will clear out for the most part tonight. Temps will only dip to about 60. Tomorrow might make up for the dreary wet weekends as of late. It'll be sunny with temperatures near 80 degrees. It'll get cloudy Sunday with a chance of showers by afternoon. The high will be in the upper 50s. High 50s for Monday and the rain will stick around. It's 75 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. This week, the film world lost actor Richard Roundtree to pancreatic cancer. He was 81 years old. Where am I, manners? I didn't even introduce myself to you gentlemen. My name is John Shaft. Freeze. Roundtree broke onto the scene playing the titular private eye in the film Shaft, but his canon of work extends well beyond that 1971 classic and its sequels. We're joined now by actor and filmmaker Tim Reed, who directed Richard Roundtree in the 1995 film Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, I just want to say that I am so sorry for the loss of your friend and I want to ask you, can you describe what the world of cinema has lost with Richard Roundtree's passing? Wow, that's a tough question to answer, but summing up almost with one word, which is icon. He was very involved in how his characters were portrayed, and he was really on it at all times and wanted to make sure not only it was the best performance he could do, but also that it, it had a point, it had a purpose within the storytelling arc. and. Uh, um, and it really was a wonderful experience being with him. And I think anyone who directed him would say the same thing. I mentioned earlier that you worked with him on the 1995 film Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. And in that film, Richard Roundtree played the character Cleve, and he has described that part as his proudest work. What comes to mind for you when you remember him in that role? Yeah, um, that was my first directorial opportunity, and I was scared um, every minute of my waking day. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I remember how he and Felicia Richard and Al Freeman Jr. and Leon and Taj Mahal rallied around me they were like a protective shield. And whenever they saw things going the opposite direction of which we all had hoped, 
they would step in and we'd have discussions, uh, even sometimes in prayer. And uh, Richard would always uh, be there to talk about the character. And the character that he played, the Iceman, uh, was not really that involved in the book, the award-winning book by Clifton Talbot. We needed a through line. So with the help of Richard and, and the author, we created the Ice Warriors and sort of made the pivotal character in that situation. I mean, whenever he's on the screen, you pay attention, you really get involved in the character with such honesty. And he was playing that because, as it was mentioned in what he said, his father had never seen any movie that he had appeared in. His father was a, a pastor, I think Pentecostal uh, preacher, and did not like at all that Richard had gone into the film business. And one day, before his father passed, Richard was home visiting and just popped in the cassette for once upon a time we were colored. And so he watched the movie, said very little. And at the end, he looked at Richard and he said, well done, my son. And that's the only time that his father had ever praised him for anything that he had ever done in his life. And uh, when he told me that story, it really got me a little, a little verklempt, as they say. Tim, do you remember when you first heard of Richard? Was it, was it from Shaft or how did you first come to know about him? Well, certainly Shaft was the first time, but just so happens that my uh, current uh, uh, manager, she was the first agent to give Richard an opportunity as a model, believe it or not, before Shaft. She saw him and knew he was going to be somebody and told me about him. And then, of course, Shaft comes out and he was somebody. He was a bad, well, we won't go that far. What kind of doors do you think his big breakthrough opened for you, for other Black actors and filmmakers? You know, I'm so proud of what people of African descent are doing throughout the world in media right now, from Nigeria to Uganda to Virginia to you name it. Um, They are strutting their stuff. They, They are doing great work. I don't know half the actors that I that are doing great work right now in the late 60s. You could put all of us in a van and you could have every actor in Hollywood that was working. <laughs> you know, it was just not that many. So whatever they did, what whatever Richard moved, there was always trailblazing. The battle to get there, the things that you had to deal with, you had to hide your strength because you didn't want them to think you were an angry Negro. Uh, So for him to come out in such an aggressive role, it was one of the first times we'd ever seen a black actor with that kind of aggression and power and and wit and charm. It was it was a first, you know, it it gave us a little a little edge. It made us think, well, wait a minute, I can say no, I'm going to do this my way. It's up to a point. And now, of course, the floodgates are open. Tim Reed, actor and filmmaker, remembering his friend, the late actor Richard Roundtree. Tim, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about my friend. In December of 1972, astronauts on the Apollo 17 mission went rock hunting on the moon. Before we cover them up, let's get them. I gotta get a sample of that mother rock. They brought about 250 pounds of moon rock back to Earth, and those samples are still being studied today. NPR's Regina Barber reports that scientists have now determined the moon is roughly 40 million years older than we thought. 
The moon is roughly 4.5 billion years old. So what does an extra 40 million years mean on this timescale? Jennifer Greer is the lead author of the study published in Geochemical Perspective Letters. Here's how she sees it. That 40 million years is significant when you look at the very dynamic early history of these two objects. A lot of stuff happened in the early solar system uh, very quickly. In the early days of our solar system, an object the size of Mars smashed directly into a forming Earth. And then they smushed together and material sort of peeled off to form the moon. A hot moon that had a magma ocean. These Apollo 17 rock samples are crystals from that cooled ocean. To figure out how old these crystals are, scientists used radiometric dating. Because uranium decays into a specific kind of lead over time, scientists can use it to work backwards and get an age. The problem is, if some of that lead is lost over time or clumps together, it can throw off the age estimate. But new technology can help. For example, Greer was able to look at this sample on the atomic level to see if the lead was undisturbed. The type of measurements that we do in, in this work would not have been possible 50 years ago. They wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. This new age isn't a surprise to Marissa Tremblay, a geochronologist who didn't work on the study but was impressed by the technique. And they're really difficult measurements to make too, so it's, it's very exciting to see these new results. Even though this older date isn't a surprise, Tremblay and Greer both agree it clarifies an important piece of the puzzle for how we, our planet, our moon, came to be what they are today. When did that magma ocean start to crystallize? It's telling us about that very early history of the moon. It's also telling us about when that big impact happened on the Earth. Tremblay also says that after dating more lunar samples, she wouldn't be surprised if the age of the moon gets even older. Regina Barber, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman Freed is known for taking risks, and today he took a big one when he took the stand today in his own defense. It is a Hail Mary attempt to convince the jury that he's innocent and not the person who committed one of the biggest financial frauds in history. NPR's David Gurra joins us now from outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan. So, David, tell us, what was it like in court today? Well, Sam Bankman-Fried took the stand wearing a gray suit, and he spent the day fielding questions from his lead defense attorney, Mark Cohen. Of course, this was not adversarial, so it went pretty smoothly. Bankman-Fried seemed pretty relaxed on the stand. He's accused of orchestrating a massive fraud involving these two companies, of funneling customer money from what was one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world into Alameda Research, his crypto trading fund, and spending that money on investments and high-end real estate and paying down billions of dollars in debt. So. Right off the bat, Cohen asked him, did you defraud anyone? And Bankman-Fried said, no, I did not. As his testimony went on, his answers became longer and more winding to the apparent frustration of the judge who at one point instructed Bankman-Fried to listen more closely to the questions and to answer them more narrowly. All right, then give us the highlights. What was the gist of his testimony today? Well, two things. Sam Bankman-Fried maintained this was not his fault. He made some mistakes, but he didn't intend to defraud anyone or commit any crimes. And he blamed some of his former top lieutenants, several of whom testified against him as cooperating witnesses. Bankman-Fried said he was too busy to track what those executives were doing, and he addressed some explosive testimony by the government's star witness. Last week, Caroline Ellison, who ran Alameda Research, that crypto trading firm, who's also his ex-girlfriend, said Bankman-Fried directed her to commit crimes. Well, today, 
He turned the tables and said she was a poor manager and the implosion of both Alameda Research and FTX was her fault. Hmm. Bankman Fried told the court the biggest mistake he made was not hiring a risk officer. FTX didn't have one. We sure should have, he said. I know you've been following the story for a while now, and it sounds like today really stood out in this trial, did it? Yeah, it was a wild scene, incredibly crowded here, the busiest I've seen it since the trial started about three weeks ago. Reporters were lining up outside the building at midnight to get a seat, and as the hours went by, they were joined by investors and lawyers, people who have ties to this case, a few dozen curious onlookers, people who seem to recognize this is without question a pivotal moment in this trial. Uh, Michael Lewis, the author, has been here. He's written a book about Sam Bankman-Fried, and he got in line shortly after I did. I should say, not at midnight, for the record. <laughs> I have seen him signing copies of that book in the courthouse, and I don't know if you're a fan, Juana, but the actor Ben McKenzie, who starred in The O.C. Wow. and the show Gotham, now a very outspoken crypto skeptic. He's got a book of his own. Ben McKenzie was here as well. Okay. Um, so, David, what happens next in this case? Well, the fireworks are expected to start on Monday when the prosecution begins its cross-examination of Sam Bankman-Fried. And, of course, this is the riskiest part of a defendant taking the stand in his own trial. Now, we've gotten a glimpse of how fiery that testimony is likely to be. On Thursday, there was an initial hearing with just the judge, Bankman-Fried's lawyers, and the prosecutors. The jury wasn't there. This was to hash out what we can see admitted in court. Danielle Sassoon, the lead prosecutor, who is also a former Supreme Court clerk, cross-examined Bankman-Fried, and she was extremely effective. It was evident her tough questions made the defendant uncomfortable. He had trouble remembering meetings, remembering conversations. It was another time when the judge admonished the defendant. At the end of today's proceedings, she told the judge she expects significant cross-examination that will start on Monday. NPR's David Gurra outside the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan. David, thank you. Thanks, Juana. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes here on All Things Considered, how much influence does former President Donald Trump have in his party? He's taking credit for the election of the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. But some observers say even though Trump can knock candidates out of various races, he's struggling to push his preferred ones forward. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com and MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting the Saw Doctors on Friday, July 12th. Tickets at MGMFenwayMusicHall.com. It'll be mostly clear out tonight. The low will be around 60 degrees. Looks like it'll be perfect tomorrow for fall yard cleanup, leaf peeping, or hiking. We'll have lots of sunshine. Highs in the upper 70s to low 80s. Sunday will be cooler in the mid to upper 50s. Clouds and then rain moves in. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. And the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. 
Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Now the story of one woman and one baby in the Gaza Strip. Under Israeli airstrikes, which started three weeks ago after the Hamas attack on southern Israel, hospitals are barely running. And they're inundated with thousands of wounded and frightened people. Meanwhile, every day, women are still giving birth. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny has the story of one of these births, a baby girl named Miriam. And a warning to listeners, this story has graphic content. Raneem Hajazi was eight months pregnant when she and her extended family, including her one-year-old son, fled their home in North Gaza and headed south. They were staying at an aunt's apartment on the fourth floor this week when, at 3 a.m., there was an Israeli airstrike. The entire family buried in the rubble. Hajazi's mother-in-law, Suha, saw her, her arms and legs trapped and mangled. Her leg, I could see the the bones, the flesh. It was dark. I didn't know what to do. Nearby, she saw a gruesome scene. Hajazi's one-year-old, Suha's grandson, wasn't moving. I was saying, Azuz, Azuz. His name. I held him. And I saw that his his head was gone. The young boy's father, Assad, survived the attack. He escaped mostly unharmed, but remembers looking over at his pregnant wife in that moment. She said, leave me, my arm. I've lost my arms, leave me to die, my son is dead. But they didn't leave her. Somehow they pulled her out. An ambulance brought her to the Nasar Hospital in Khan Yunis where thousands of people lined the corridors, seeking safety from the ongoing airstrikes. That's where our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, met the family and medical staff. It's like unbelievable. You cannot imagine how bad the situation. Dr. Mohammed Kandil was the emergency doctor who treated the wounded Hijazi. When she came in, her legs were badly burned, her arm crushed in need of amputation. And the baby, they had to deliver her before any other surgeries could happen. So we have to take a, a hard decision, which, which is to deliver the babies. So Dr. Candil did an emergency C-section without electricity. We have uh, electricity shutdown a few days back, and we have to work hours by mobile phone. Cell phones illuminated the operating table while they worked. We have no water. I don't have water to wash my hands, and this is reality. Plus, there's no antibiotics to fight infections. And yet... The babies are okay, thanks God. Hijazi is still in the ICU, facing more surgeries. The doctors tell the family she needs to go to Egypt to get better care than the hospitals can give in Gaza. So far, the borders are closed. No one is getting out. But on a day with so much death, including seven members of this family, a baby girl was born. They named her Miriam after her aunt, who died in the airstrikes. Assad, who has been visiting his wife and daughter at the hospital each day, 
says that soon he'll be able to take baby Miriam, but not home. That's destroyed, and it's unclear what future awaits her. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Today, Capitol Hill is known for partisanship and dysfunction. See, the speakership drama of the past three weeks. But we're going to spend the next couple of minutes remembering a man who embodied a different sensibility. Bertie Bowman was the longest-serving African-American Capitol Hill staffer in history. He died this week at 92 years old. The story of Bowman's long congressional career began in 1944 at a tiny store in South Carolina where Democratic Senator Burnett Maybank was campaigning for re-election. One day I went to McDougal's store and all these cars, black shiny cars and the chauffeurs all dressed neat and everything. And this man, this white man, Senator Maybank now I know, were running for re-election. That was back in 1944. I was, I just had turned 13 years old. But uh, when he left, his last words were, if you ever get to Washington, come by and see me. Boy, the people just clap. Bowman took Senator Maybank at his word. He did go to Washington, and he did go and see Senator Maybank, who hired him to sweep the Capitol steps, paying Bowman's salary himself. I didn't think that was going to happen like that, but we Southerners... We stick together. One job led to another, and by the time Bowman retired, he was the scheduler for the Foreign Relations Committee. Over nearly eight decades, Bowman worked for the likes of Strom Thurmond and J. William Fulbright. Both men were segregationists, but Bowman called them friends. He talked about the complexity of those relationships with Morning Edition's Steve Inskeep in 2008. If you have somebody like Strom Thurmond, though, and he's given these segregation speeches... You wonder how could he uh, be so kind to me and say all these other bad things. Now, now, I'll be telling you a lie if I say some things he said didn't hurt me, if that's what you want to hear. The good outweigh the bad, the way I look at it. Bowman took pride in treating everyone with kindness and respect. Some people who haven't spent time in the Capitol may find it amazing to think that you're up here, that you're working in this huge committee room, that you're working around 21 senators who are Democrats or Republicans, some of whom are running for president, and you're working hard to treat them all the same and be non-political. Some people may find that to be an impossible Yeah, but it's not hard working to try to treat them nice. Number one, my mother told me to be patient and do what you're supposed to do, be truthworthy, and be dependable. And that takes care of a lot of things. And I'll find out if they care a lot of things with me. One of the senators whom Bowman worked with, Nebraska's Chuck Hagel, told CBS in 2019 that Bowman reminded people of something important that has been lost in Congress. Civility. To 
Tomorrow on All Things Considered, Heart Island, located off the coast of the Bronx in New York City, is home to the country's largest public cemetery filled with unmarked graves. More than a million people have been buried there since 1869. One of them is a writer who Ernest Hemingway once called his favorite living writer, Don Powell. She was a truth teller. Women who pointed things out, women who observed things, women who told the truth. Those kind of women scare me. Her story and how she ended up buried on Heart Island tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From United Airlines, on a mission to do good in the air and committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Learn more at united.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. Thanks for joining us this Friday evening here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 75 degrees in Boston, and we're calling all crafters. Join us at City Space Monday, November 13th for an evening dedicated to homemade creations. Free tickets at WBUR.org events. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities in Maine have identified all 18 people killed in a mass shooting this week. And a shelter-in-place order has been lifted, but the search for the gunman continues. It's Friday, October 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Republicans have elected a new House Speaker, but there's still debate over former President Trump's influence in the process. He has the ability to knock people out, but getting his preferred candidates has been something he has not been successful at doing. Still many Trump supporters see Speaker Johnson's election as a victory. And eek, Halloween is four days away and you don't have a costume? A DIY expert will have tips for great last minute spooky and fun get-ups. It's 6.01, news headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
Ahead of an expected ground invasion of Gaza on the part of Israel, Vice President Kamala Harris met with family members of U.S. citizens who are still missing after the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports the White House says 10 U.S. citizens remain unaccounted for. In addition to sitting down with families, Vice President Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff also attended a meeting at the State Department led by the administration's hostage affairs leader. White House officials say more trucks of aid for Palestinians are being allowed into Gaza, but 20 days into the conflict, they have no update on a humanitarian passage out for civilians, including hundreds of American citizens who are still trapped in Gaza. Israel has intensified its bombardment on Gaza as it prepares for a ground invasion. Palestinians say there is a complete internet and communication blackout. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. President Biden met with China's top foreign policy official in Washington today as part of ongoing efforts to stabilize a rocky bilateral relationship. The meeting is expected to help pave the way for a trip by Chinese leader Xi Jinping to San Francisco next month for an Asia-Pacific Leaders Summit. Here's NPR's John Ruich. Foreign Minister Wang Yi's hour-long meeting with Biden comes at a time of high tension between Washington and Beijing. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Biden saw the meeting as a positive development and a good opportunity to keep up dialogue with China. While in Washington, Wang is also meeting Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The meetings come after the U.S. military flagged what it called an unsafe and unprofessional intercept over the South China Sea when a Chinese fighter jet came within 10 feet of a U.S. B-52 bomber during a night sortie this week. Kirby said the U.S. side has raised concerns about the intercept during the meetings with Wang. John Ruich, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump is slated to testify at his civil business fraud trial in New York next month. Scheduled date disclosed today when the judge in the case also ruled Trump's daughter Ivanka must take the stand. Trump's sons Donald Jr. and Eric were already expected to testify. Prosecutors contend Trump inflated the value of his New York businesses. A pioneering experimental gene editing technique appears to be highly effective in treating sickle cell disease, but questions remain about the long-term safety. That's according to the FDA and Piers Robson. The analysis was released in advance of an FDA meeting to consider whether the agency should approve the treatment for the devastating blood disorder. The treatment would be the first to use the revolutionary gene editing technique known as CRISPR to help patients. The FDA scientists conclude the treatment alleviates devastating pain crises that plague sickle cell patients, but the scientists question whether sufficient studies have been done to spot potentially dangerous gene editing errors. Rob Stein, NPR News. The Dow is down 366 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The search continues for the man accused of killing 18 people in Lewiston, Maine, but residents no longer need to shelter in place as of late today. Hunting is prohibited in Lewiston and three other towns in the search area. Maine Public Safety Commissioner Mike Soschuk says hunters can go out in all other parts of the state. That means that there are going to be communities that hear gunshots from time to time because they're going to be hunting. Um, So we would ask everybody to use caution in that and not think that every one of those gunshots is directly uh, regarding this particular crisis situation, this investigation. Also, the state today released the names of the 18 victims killed in the mass shooting at a bowling alley and a bar. Families of students at some Lewiston-area colleges are bringing their kids back to Massachusetts. 18-year-old Marcus Davis is a student at Bates College and a member of the school's football team. He left the campus this afternoon to go home for the weekend. In communicating with people on the football team, uh, there have been a number of people that have decided to to travel home 
see their families and just sort of get off campus. Davis says he knows a number of Bates students who plan to stay on campus. The rollout of the new COVID vaccine is off to a sluggish start six weeks after it was introduced. New data from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health showed just 9% of residents have received a shot so far. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports. Supply delays made for a bumpy start to this fall's COVID vaccination effort. There's a lot more vaccine available now, but public health officials say the number of people getting shots is lagging. They acknowledge that people are tired of COVID and tired of getting shots. But Larry Madoff, infectious disease doctor at the Department of Public Health, says the new vaccine offers important protection. Even if you've had COVID, you should still get vaccinated. It adds to your protection makes it less likely that you'll get long COVID, makes it less likely that you'll have a severe infection. Madoff says he's optimistic that more people will roll up their sleeves for COVID shots and flu shots before the peak of respiratory virus season. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCleskey. In sports, it's the second game of the season for the Celtics tonight as they take on the Miami Heat at the Garden. Their first game was Wednesday night. They beat the Knicks in the season opener. Tonight will be a nice late October night, not very cool, around 60 degrees. Skies will be mainly clear. The weekend will start out beautiful, near 80 degrees and mostly sunny tomorrow. Then Sunday, we might see showers by afternoon. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the mid to upper 50s. Monday, more rain and temps in the upper 50s. We have partly cloudy skies right now in Boston and 74 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It has been another frustrating, painful day for people around Lewiston, Maine, where 18 people died in this week's mass shooting. The prime suspect still has not been located. Much of the search effort today focused on the water of the Andrew Scoggin River. And Piers Brian Mann was at that river earlier today while state police divers were in it. Hey, Brian. Hey there, Elsa. Okay, so what were these divers looking for exactly in that river? Yeah, one possibility here is that Robert Card, the prime suspect, is no longer alive, that he took his own life. Authorities aren't speculating about this. They won't reveal the contents of a note that they have now confirmed that they found on one of his family's properties. But what they're doing now is searching the river bottom, searching the bank of the Andrew Scoggin River and nearby forests. Mark Lottie with the Maine Department of Fisheries and Wildlife helped coordinate this part of the search today, uh, which actually took place where Robert Card's car was found at a boat launch. In these type of searches, sometimes the best thing is that we're able to eliminate an area and go to another area. By clearing the banks, uh, clearing the island, we can send some of our searchers into other areas. So you can hear Elsa there, they're describing this as progress, but no big clues found, no breakthroughs so far today. No idea if he's dead or alive. Okay, well, I understand questions are being raised about how Card was able to even have those powerful firearms, even though there were concerns about his mental health, right? What do we know about that? Yeah, this is interesting. He was an Army reservist, and last summer concerns were raised by military officials about his erratic behavior. He was taken to a hospital at one point, it's still unclear whether police here in Maine were warned of threats or safety concerns linked to CARD that might have 
triggered the state's yellow flag law, which in theory allows police to seize guns from people who might be at risk to themselves or others. Mike Sashak, who's commissioner of the Maine Department of Public Safety, was asked about this this morning. Well, I'm heavily involved in the yellow flag conversation overall, but the reality for today uh, is I'm not going to talk specifically about who knew what and when. We're still actively involved in a very dynamic situation here. There will be a time. Can you confirm warnings were issued? I cannot. I cannot confirm that one. So So again, also, there's a lot we don't know here, but speaking yesterday, Maine's Republican Senator Susan Collins also raised this issue. She said more could have been done to protect this community. It certainly seems that on the basis of the facts that we have, that the yellow flag log should have been triggered if in fact the suspect was hospitalized for two weeks for mental illness. He should have been separated from his weapons. So pressure is really growing on law enforcement to talk about what they knew about Robert Card before this attack and what actions they did or didn't take. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, are these shelter-in-place orders still in effect? And how are people dealing with them? No. In fact, the shelter-in-order place has been rescinded. This happened just after 5 p.m. local time. And so in theory, things here can start to move back toward a new kind of normal. Uh, Schools until now have been closed. Kids' sports events canceled or delayed. Now things will start opening up again. Um, There is one big exception, Elsa. Deer hunting is a huge deal here in Maine, and the season opens tomorrow. In theory, that would have meant a lot of people out with rifles in the woods near Lewiston where this search continues. But state officials announced late this afternoon they're going to prohibit hunting until further notice in four towns, Bowdoin, Lewiston, Lisbon, and Monmouth. Uh, No clarity yet on how long officials are going to keep that in place. We're getting the sense from police they think this search could go on a long time. And Brian, what are we learning so far about the victims? Well, Maine's chief medical examiner has confirmed to NPR in an email that all 18 people who died have now finally been identified. They range in age from 14 to 76. Uh, those lost include Joe Walker, the bar manager at Shemengi's, where one of the shootings took place. His dad told NBC News that Joe was a great son and a loving husband. Trisha Asselin worked at uh, the bowling alley where more of the violence took place. She was remembered as fun and happy-go-lucky. One thing we are hearing now is that officials are trying to help arrange public vigils, places to gather. Uh, That's been delayed so far by these lockdowns. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Republican infighting over the House Speaker has ended, but it hasn't stopped the debate over the role that former President Donald Trump played in picking that new leader. The new Speaker, Congressman Mike Johnson, is already being called MAGA Mike by Trump and others, but many here in Washington say the three weeks of chaos that led to Johnson's new position revealed more about Trump's limitations than his power. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports. It wasn't long after the removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker that former President Donald Trump was inserting himself into the Speaker's race. If I can help them during the process, then we do it. He talked about traveling to the Capitol to weigh in. He flirted with the idea of taking over the role himself. Then he endorsed Jim Jordan, one of his top allies on Capitol Hill. Excuse me. Excuse me. But Trump's championing was not enough to unify the increasingly angry conference. Can we find somebody in here? Can anybody here tell me we got somebody in here and get the 217? That's Congressman Troy Nels, who voiced the frustrations of so many Republicans. Once Jordan flamed out, Trump said he would try to stay out of the race. 
But that didn't last long at all. Just hours after Representative Tom Emmer won the nomination next, Trump went on the attack. He called Emmer a globalist rhino who was out of touch with Republican voters and his Make America Great Again movement. He was a MAGA. Most people are MAGA in the Republican Party. They want to see our country be great again. But while many people in Washington saw Emmer's downfall as a sign of Trump's growing power, others, like Michael Short, who worked for Trump at the White House, saw the limits of his old boss's strength. The speaker debacle shows that, you know, Trump's grip on the conference isn't, you know, ironclad, right? Short said Trump can play the spoiler for Emmer, but he could not play the kingmaker for Jordan. You know, he has the ability to cause problems for people and knock people out, but getting his preferred candidates, you know, where he wants to get them has been something he has not been successful at doing. It's not like Emmer didn't already have troubles before Trump torpedoed the nomination. Emmer won the most support, but he was still short 26 votes when he could only afford to lose four. Trump did not kill Emmer. He's taking credit for it, but he didn't kill Emmer. Emmer was done. Doug High used to work for Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. He said Emmer had too many problems with too many Republicans. One member in conference told him he had to get right with God because of gay marriage, right? Which is insane. High said Johnson's election reflected more on the exhaustion in the Republican Party rather than Trump's influence. And Trump waited until the 11th hour to endorse Johnson, when it was already clear he had the support to win the race. But if you look at Johnson's resume, he does have a long list of Trump bona fides. Johnson pushed Trump's false claims about election fraud, and he was a key architect of the effort to overturn the 2020 election. And Trump world is claiming Johnson as one of their own. MAGA is ascendant. Matt Gates spearheaded the effort to oust Kevin McCarthy. He went on a podcast hosted by Trump's old campaign chair, Steve Bannon. He claimed Johnson's victory proves Donald Trump continues to dominate the Republican Party. If you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, then you're not paying attention. It's pretty clear everyone is paying attention now. The question is how much power Trump will wield over Johnson and the House, especially going into the election in 2024. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News. You know, Juana, sometimes the scariest thing around Halloween is not having a costume ready, right? So we have called an expert. All you need is a black garbage bag. That's Amy Panos from Better Homes and Gardens magazine. And she says with a quick cut and paste, you'll be ready to fly. Just cut a scalloped pattern in kind of a half circle shape out of the bag. Those are your wings. Wear it with a black t-shirt or sweatshirt and black sweats. And there you have a super easy, super cheap, practically free bat costume. I mean, assuming you're artistic. But, <laughs> you know, if you're not looking to soar solo, you can also DIY with your BFF. That would be going as the it couple of the moment, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. You can abbreviate that trailer if you're in the know. One person would wear a red football jersey. Travis plays for the Chiefs and his color is red. And the other person, the fun part, could just choose one of Taylor Swift's many different looks from her many different eras and bonus points for a long blonde wig with bangs. <laughs> if you're set on what to wear but still looking for what to serve, Panos suggests, well, a snack-o-lantern. 
basically you're going to make our charcuterie board that is the color and shape of a jack-o'-lantern. You can pile up orange snack foods like orange cheeses, carrots, even cheddar cheese popcorn. But then the most important part is the black that you need for the jack-o'-lantern's smile and eyes. For that, you could use black jelly beans, blackberries, anything that's small, black, and can be sort of shaped into a smile and eyes. Okay, but as a procrastinator, I have to know, what about the decorations? One easy and fun idea would be to make sort of candle holders that look like mummies. <laughs> and then all you're going to do is wrap them around with either white gauze or you could use even white crepe paper. You're just going to like wind it around loosely and tape it in the back. And then here's the key. You're going to want to add googly eyes on the front. For more last-minute ideas, Amy Pano says Better Homes and Gardens has a whole issue called Halloween Tips and Tricks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, GM says it's pausing operations on its driverless taxi service, Cruise, after the California DMV pulled its permit because of safety concerns. What that'll mean for the expansion of EVs and new driverless technologies that's ahead at 630. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped more than 367 points. More than 1%. The S&P fell half a percent. NASDAQ gained 0.4%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting Luke's Leeds Beethoven with conductor Václav Luke's tonight and Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Skies will clear out for the most part tonight. Temps will only dip to about 60. Tomorrow might make up for the dreary, wet weekends we've had as of late. It'll be sunny with temperatures near 80. It'll get cloudy Sunday with a chance of showers by afternoon. The high will be in the mid to upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health, with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. And Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade eight. Open house November 5th, more at Wellen.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Just hours ago, Israel began intensifying its bombing campaign and ground operations in Gaza. This is nearly three weeks after the Hamas attack that Israel says killed 1,400 people. Since then, Gaza officials say Israeli attacks on Gaza have killed more than 7,000 people there. Today's stepped-up attacks announced by Israel seem to begin right as we had reached our producer on the ground in southern Gaza, Anas Baba. Hi, Anas, are you able to hear us? Yeah, hi. Sorry, the signal isn't that, like, perfect. It's okay. It's a bit like, yeah, it's a little bit bouncy. It's maybe you're going to hear me and maybe not. I think we should go ahead and get into it while your signal sounds good, yeah? All right. Um, I'll try. I'll try. This is going to be a little bit Okay. Anas was with us for a few more seconds before his call dropped, and not long after that, Palestinian cell phone and internet companies reported that Israeli strikes caused a complete communication blackout in Gaza. We kept trying to reach Anas. Welcome to Uridu. The number you are calling is currently unreachable. Please try again later. Hours later, he regained internet for just a few minutes and texted, I'm alive. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Juana. So, Daniel, what can you tell us so far about this new development in the war? Israeli Army spokesman Daniel Hagari uh, told reporters that the Air Force has increased its bombing campaign in Gaza. It's hitting underground targets, which is where Hamas has tunnels and fighters. And he said that Israel's ground troops are expanding their ground maneuvers. Now, till now, Israel has only done limited ground incursions, uh, but the army says it is attacking Gaza City and its surroundings. There are reports already of Israeli tanks inside Gaza exchanging gunfire with militants. I asked an army spokesman, does this mean the beginning of a ground invasion? And all he said was the military operation is expanding. Uh, But it does certainly resemble the kind of intensive bombardment that would characterize the start of a major ground offensive. Um, And Israel's goal is to eliminate Hamas's military capabilities after um, Hamas stunned Israel earlier this month with a massacre uh, of Israelis in the south. We mentioned, of course, that communications blackout. But Daniel, what can you tell us about how this is affecting life in Gaza right now? Right. Well, I mean, for several hours uh, after you tried to reach uh, our producer, Amanas Baba, the the phone lines, the mobile networks, Internet were not working. Uh, We had very little idea of what was happening inside Gaza. Uh, We got back in touch briefly with Anas Baba, but now uh, the phone lines are all down again. Mm -hmm. And this is making rescue efforts really difficult inside Gaza. There is not a way now for people to call ambulances and first responders. The United Nations humanitarian coordinator for the Palestinian territories, Lynn Hastings, tweeted, Gaza has lost contact with the outside world. She said, hospitals and humanitarian operations cannot continue without communications. Uh, Now, our producer, Anas Baba, uh, is not in Gaza City. He has evacuated. Uh, But I have not been able to reach neither him nor our other NPR colleague, um, Hamad Dramli, who works as a driver for NPR and helps report for us, he is in Gaza City still, and this is the area that's now being bombarded. Okay. Daniel, how likely is this to affect the next... How is this likely to affect the next stages of the war? It raises serious questions about diplomatic efforts that we have been hearing about to release the 
229 Israeli and foreign hostages who were taken back to Gaza in the Hamas attacks this month. Um, so we're going to have to also see if Hamas now intensifies its rocket fire onto Israel. A rocket hit a building in Tel Aviv earlier today and caused some injuries. There is also the prospect uh, that the conflict could spread throughout the Middle East. There were pro-Hamas marches in the occupied West Bank tonight. Um, but if this is truly the prelude to the anticipated ground invasion that we've all been hearing about, um, it could mean many months of fierce urban combat inside Gaza. That could lead to heavy casualties, both of Israeli soldiers and especially of Palestinian fighters and civilians. And this is a war, of course, that has already seen absolutely catastrophic death tolls, both in Israel and in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you, as always, for your reporting. You're welcome, Juana. Since the war began, reporter Ari Daniel has been keeping in touch with a couple of doctors in Gaza. They've been treating people wounded by the airstrikes pretty much around the clock in crisis conditions. Daniel reached out to them earlier today before Gaza lost both phone and Internet service. When I called up Jamal Abu Hilal on WhatsApp today, I caught him in the middle of his rounds to see patients. He's an orthopedic surgeon at the European Gaza Hospital in southern Gaza, which, like other health facilities in the enclave, is overrun with the wounded. We have in our hospital more than 200 injured patients. Most of them are open wound with fracture, multiple fractures. Just, just I will show you. Abu Hilal switches us over to a video call for a few seconds, long enough for me to see someone's lower leg sliced open. He'll dress the wound, but there will be no surgery for this patient, he says. Because there is a lack of anesthesia, equipment, and even personnel. It's very difficult. I will show you another one. This time, I see a man with severe burns modeling his torso and legs. And then Abu Hilal shows me something else. Patients sitting and standing in the hallway. There's just not enough room for everyone. It's the same at Ashifa Hospital in northern Gaza. 550 beds, but twice as many patients. Here's Dr. Mohammed Matar. They put something like a tank in the ground outside the hospital in front of the emergency department to put some of the injured patients there. Matar says that with so many wounded patients, surgeons don't have the time for complicated operations, so they must make difficult choices, like amputating a limb, whereas normally they might try to save it. And he tells me these decisions often mean choosing the life of one patient at the expense of another. It takes a heavy toll. Even some of the doctors, medical staffs, they are saying, what is the benefit of the hell what we are doing now? We are not able to help patients anymore. We cannot do anything for them. Matar says that an Israeli ground invasion would bring even more injured people to the battered hospitals of Gaza. There'd be bullet wounds and blast injuries from the tanks. Matar worries it would be more perilous for ambulances. Condition not good now, but we expect with the ground operation to be worse and more tragic, actually. At night, Matar says Ashifa fills with thousands of patients seeking refuge from the Israeli air raids. But daylight's no perfect shield. Yesterday, Matar's father was killed in a bombardment. I'm trying to adapt, he says, but it's difficult. Ari Daniel, NPR News.
This is NPR News. And thanks for being with WBUR this evening. All signs point toward a massive Israeli ground invasion of Gaza as the humanitarian crisis there grows more dire. The latest from Israel and Maine starting at 8 tomorrow morning. Then wait, wait at 10 here on 90.9 WBUR. Start your weekend here. The nice weather continues to start the weekend. Skies will be mostly clear tonight. It'll be around 60 degrees. Upper 70s to low 80s tomorrow with lots of sun. Sunday looks mostly cloudy with a chance of showers by afternoon and temps in the mid to upper 50s. Then rain and upper 50s for Monday. Marketplace has all the day's business news next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. <laughs> 